Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Darko Audio Podcast. In this episode, I'm going to be joined once again by Six Moons' Srajan Ibayan, and we're going to be discussing four news items that have caught our attention in the last few weeks. Also, not only is this podcast going out on YouTube, but it will also go out, as it has done for the last couple of years, over on SoundCloud, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. So yes, we've made the jump to YouTube, but I'm still continuing to roll out the audio track of this podcast for people who just don't want to eat up their bandwidth with video or with my ugly face or Srajan's ugly face. Sorry, Srajan. Anyway, we start this episode with the introduction of a new loudspeaker from Acoustic Energy. Okay, I think we're rolling, Sajan. Now, All right. <laughs> once again, we're going to plow through four, maybe five news items that have caught our collective attention in the last two weeks or since we last spoke a couple of weeks ago. And I believe you're going to kick us off with a new speaker from the UK's Acoustic Energy. Correct. But before we start, I have a stupid question for you. Okay. <laughs> There's no such thing as stupid questions, Sajan. No, you're familiar with the saying, uh, think globally, act locally? No, I'm not. <laughs> Where does that come from? Okay. <laughs> well, let me just put it this way. So here in Ireland, we have a couple of chains of uh, grocery stores, right? We have something called Super Value. We've got Tesco. We've got Aldi. And we've got Lidl. Mm-hmm. And Super Value are Irish. Tesco are British. And Aldi and Lidl are German. So my wife and I thinking that, you know, the Irish producers, especially the farmers, deserve our support. We do most of our shopping at Super Value because okay. it supports the local economy. And then only things that we can't get, we sort of plug the holes at Tesco. And now our mm-hmm. money basically ends up in the UK. And so when we are thinking about the four big British hi-fi houses, speaker houses, mm. I would uh, name B&W. Kef, mm-hmm. Tenoy, and Monitor Audio. Mm-hmm. And right now on the Absolute Sound, there is a video, a YouTube video, on B&W's domestic, so UK-based production of their 800 series loudspeakers. Right, so you, an- you see a big factory, you see workers there, so you know that those workers are getting paid in pounds, they live in the UK, wonderful. But then you must realize that if you do mean for your money to end up and stay in the UK, that B&W today are American-owned, and Tenoy are owned by a company in the Philippines, and Mm -hmm. KEF are owned by a company in Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. So whatever profits are being made, they end up offshore. Mm -hmm. Tenoy Reborn is now called Fine, Fine Audio, F-Y-I-N, and they're back in Scotland. And meanwhile, IAG, that's short for International Audio Group, it's a Chinese company, and they own a lot of former British brands like mm-hmm. Audiolab, Castle, Echo, Leak, Mission, Quad, and Wharfdale. Mm-hmm. Now, Monitor Audio are still privately owned, but they produce in China. They don't own their own Chinese factory, but they own their own Chinese production line. Mm-hmm. And half their employees are Chinese-based, 
and the other half are UK based. Mm -hmm. So even though they produce in China and they have employees over there that get paid, the company is owned in the UK, so the profits stay in the UK. So if you're somebody that, that thinks, I want to act locally, and I want with my hi-fi money to support the local economy, and if you are living in the UK, you would want to buy monitor audio, not BMW, Kef, or Tenoy. Mm -hmm. So now that gets us to acoustic energy. Now, acoustic energy were founded in 1987 in London by a designer called Phil Jones, who came from Vitavox. And he became famous for a speaker called the AE1. Mm -hmm. It was a small monitor, it was like a five and a quarter inch two-way, ported. That thing made bass like up to then, nobody expected from a small speaker like that, sort of like mid to lower 30s. And it could play really loud without distorting. It was sort of a landmark product at its time. Mm -hmm. Phil Jones left the company. He ended up later with uh, Linfield, with the Linfield project of Boston Acoustics. And then four years later, found a Platinum Audio. And there we had the AE1 from Acoustic Energy Reborn, and it was called the Platinum Solo. And again, it got incredible reviews in Stereophile. And when I was still in retail, I actually sold them. Mm. Again, it was a small, compact speaker, very inefficient. It loved power, but it could go really, really low. Okay, so now we get Mr. Jones out of the picture because he's no longer with Acoustic Energy. And we find out that, now I have to look this up, Acoustic Energy was taken over by an OEM company in Malaysia called mm -hmm. Formosa ProSonic Group. But 30 years to the month after the founding date, so April the 3rd, 2017, the UK team bought Acoustic Energy back. Mm -hmm. So as of today, Acoustic Energy is a British-owned company again. And now my impression is that with this newest product called the Corinium, they are attempting to take the brand upmarket. And the Corinium, in fact, has its own website. It's still Acoustic Energy, but then slash Corinium, it has its own sort of landing page. Mm -hmm. And uh, supposedly it was an R&D for three years. And the basic concept is of a two-way monitor that sits atop a dual woofer subwoofer, all mm -hmm. in the same enclosure. The enclosure breaks back slightly by about four degrees. The front baffle is aluminum or aluminum. Mm. Then we have sort of a, a boat hull curved cabinet with sort of like a lute style cross section. Mm -hmm. And then we have outriggers on the bottom with like big aluminum sort of pointy spikes. Um, acoustic energy prior to that had a carbon fiber tweeter that they say was as light as their previous aluminum tweeter but they were still looking to improve it. They looked now at a new silk from Japan and then eventually ended up with a new synthetic polyester fiber called Teteron from a company called Torai. Mm -hmm. So it's again a silk dome, I mean a soft dome tweeter, but the material that it's made out of is now a synthetic. It's no longer the traditional silk. And then we're crossing over to a... 12 centimeter carbon fiber mid-range on a second order filter. And then we have dual 14 centimeter carbon fiber woofers at the bottom. 
Uh, claimed bandwidth is down to 38 hertz. Sensitivity is unusually high for this type speaker. It's 92 dB. Mm -hmm. And uh, <coughs> the filter frequencies are at 260 and 3,400 hertz. Mm -hmm. And the dimensions are just 10 centimeters taller than a meter. And the grills are magnetic. Now, each speaker weighs a solid 40 kilograms. And an optional finish is British Racing Green. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. Okay. I happen to love that particular color. I know yes. that you fancy it too, because yes. you got a monitor audio, sort of yep. a special edition yep. speaker. Yes. So I'm not, uh, I'm not a car nut, but I do appreciate the old, really sleek looking Jaguars. Mm -hmm. And if I had the money, and if I was a car nut, I would go after one of those classic Jaguars in British Racing Green, with like sort of a camel tan interior. Mm. And I actually had to look up why it's called British Racing Green. And apparently this goes back to the days of uh, car racing, where the classic British cars were green, German cars were silver, French cars were blue, and Italian cars were red. Funnily mm. enough, I read an interview with a um, Asian distributor for Acoustic Energy, and he brought in all the finishers, which is white, black, and a wood veneer that's called tectona or yeah, tectona. It's sort of mm -hmm. like a teak kind of wood. And the mm -hmm. one color that he didn't bring in was the British Racing Green. Because he said himself and all of his clients thought that it was a really, really weird color. They did not know what to make with it. Really? <laughs> yeah, they just thought it outrageously weird. <clears throat> okay. And the speaker sells for six thousand pounds. Mm. And just British Racing Green is a surcharge. It's another thousand pounds, mm -hmm. but it's like 14 layer lacquer, high gloss polish. I mean, it looks the bomb. Yeah, I bet. So I was reading an interview with, what's his name? Martin Harding, their international sales manager. And he said that the project brief for the Corinium that's what it's called, the speaker, mm. was to improve their previous flagship, which is the AE520, mm -hmm. which sells for 3,650 pounds. Mm. Now, the new one is nearly double. It's 10 kilograms heavier. It now uses HDF for the, the, the curved enclosure rather than MDF. And that HDF is further sort of damped with a rubber layer. And there's one thing that this gentleman said about acoustic energy, which I found really to the point. He said that acoustic energy as a company are big enough to cope and small enough to care. Hmm. Which I thought was interesting because it sort of puts them in the middle of the really, really big sort of multinational quasi-corporations and the little mom-and-pop boutique that might have three or four employees at the most. Hmm. And he also pointed out that Acoustic Energy does not sell through online stores or any online channels. And to go back to the uh, opening, they are made in China. Okay. But the I mean, company is owned in the UK. So again, whatever profits are being made after the employees are getting paid and everything, those profits are staying in the country. Did you see, I think Acoustic Energy, when they were sort of reborn in 2017, 
<clears throat> excuse me, they launched a, a mini monitor active speaker called the AE1 Active. Correct. And I looked at it and went, mm, shall I? And then I just sort of ran out of time and didn't get, but it's always been on my mind. I keep seeing reviews of it obviously being very favorable, but it looks interesting because it's, I say it's only a thousand pounds a pair, but in the, in the, in the world of active monitors, that's pretty affordable. I think, I mean, it's all you gotta do is plug in your source and off you go. And it's sort of flown under the radar. And I think Acoustic Energy continue, maybe they don't want to, but they continue to fly under the radar. I think the last time I saw them at a show was, well, Warsaw in 2019, but that was the, the last Polish event that I went to. But yeah, they're, they're, a, they're a curious company. I'm, I don't want to dismiss them as being small. I've always sort of filed them mentally next to Spendor, Proac. Who else might be in that group? Harbeth. Yeah, Harbeth. Yeah, this is the BBC guys. Yeah. Mm hmm but maybe they're not and that your story about the the, uh, the managerial buyout in 2017 explains why we didn't really hear much from them in the 2010s or the noughties or yeah yeah interesting and so i think that this particular speaker project is an attempt to sort of bring the company sort of up in terms right. of visibility and cachet mm -hmm. that's why i'm very curious about possibly reviewing it and certainly i think it's an interesting product for our viewers to sort of know about yes Yes, it is. Yeah, because it's sort of a little bit left of center, right? Yeah, exactly. Is it my turn, Trajan, to I talk believe about... so. Over to you. All right. <laughs> You'll have to excuse me because my notes are on my screen above me here. So if you see my eyes looking upwards, that's why. Now, I just mentioned active monitors. There is a company who have been, again, sort of mentally on my radar in the background for a long time. And that company is Neumann. Now I hadn't really paid them much attention because I don't really know why, but then I met a chap last year called Heiko Hoffman, who is, I guess what you might loosely describe as a sort of techno music expert, but he's worked for magazines in Berlin. He's working for, I think he works for a publishing company right now. I think I'm not sure, but he, when I first met him, he was telling me that he was, demoing a pair of Neumann stand mount active loudspeakers. And he said, John, you should try them. They're just near your house. I'm like, what, really? And then I, sort of, I kind of forgot about it. And then I was watching one of uh, Jesko Lohan's videos the other day. Jesko is a friend of mine. He's an acoustic expert here. And he makes you know, YouTube videos as well. And he, he mentioned the Neumann KH120 Mark II in one of his recent videos. I'm thinking, I've got to look at this up again. And I did, and I realized that these, this KH120 Mark II is only new this year, and somehow I completely missed the announcement. But what really got me fired up to write about it on my website was when I, when I Googled Neumann headquarters in Berlin. I'm not even joking when I say they are at the end of my street. <laughs> and I had no idea. Like the, the, the headquarters is like it would take me like a minute to get there. It's ridiculous. No. So, Neumann, yeah. aren't those the people that make the, the Neumann laces for vinyl cutting? Yes, they do. And yep. they also make very famous, I believe, microphones, right? Yes, they do. Yes. So they're sort of, I don't want to say, <laughs> I hate using this phrase, jack of all trades, because it implies that they're not very good at any one of them, a master of none, but that's not true. Um, yeah, the, I mean, the Neumann lathes are classics. The microphones, as far as I can tell, are classics. And they've been making, they've been making the KH120, the original, since 2010. So this version two 
is, you know, it took them 13 years to put it together. Now, do you think that these are considered to be like location recording monitors? I think they are studio monitors for studio people who make music. At least that's the way they're pitched in into the market. Mm -hmm. So like a lot of these companies like Adam and Head, they're mainly aiming their marketing at yeah, home producers of music or mastering engineers or whoever, right? Mm -hmm. They're definitely not aiming them at home listeners. And that's why I like writing about this because I'm thinking, why why wouldn't you have a pair of something like this at home, especially when we consider what this speaker is because it's a two-way, so nothing dramatic about that, but it's an active loudspeaker. So you've got one amp per driver and therefore one DAC per driver because the crossover is done in DSP. And as we know, the advantages of having a DSP-based crossover are that you're not using passive components that can introduce phase errors. But I believe with this new KH120 Mark II, it's such a mouthful to say, um, what the engineers at Neumann have done is they've linearized the speaker. So basically all the frequencies leave the speaker at the same time. So they've done that in DSP. Time which, aligned, you mean, right? Yeah, time aligned. Yeah, they call it linearizing. It's yes, time alignment. Mm -hmm. So it's obviously not reaching the ear at the same time because you don't know what the room's going to do to it all, but leaving the speaker at the same time. So that's, I guess, one advantage. And then as usual, on the back of the speaker, you've got bass shelving, mid-range shelving, and treble shelving. So you can just tweak the output of the speaker according to placement and your room a little bit. But I think that's pretty standard, even on audiophile actives nowadays. Now, there's no streaming in this loudspeaker. So you've got RCAs on the back, you've got digital inputs on the back as well, and you've got XLR sockets on the back. So you'd have to add your own streaming front end. Now, you and I have spoken endlessly about the Fio R7 um, recently, and I think that would be the perfect candidate, especially in white for the speakers, which you can get in white. So I think, you know, the streaming source in white, the speakers in white. But I think what really kind of cements it for me is that this new Neumann speaker can interface with Neumann's MA1, and they call it automatic alignment, which is essentially room compensation software. And so you measure the room with a microphone. You've got to buy this kit separately. It's 299, 279 euros for this microphone and whatever other cables that come with it. So you can measure your room and then inject some kind of correction curve into the speaker. So the correction curve lives in the speaker. I don't know whether it does channels, each channel independently. I would imagine it does in order to kind of make sure that, you know, imaging is, is rock solid. Um, but when you factor in that this pair of speakers sells for 17 or no, 1800 euros, so with the room correction, you're looking at 2100. That's a pretty potent solution for, I guess, smallish rooms because it's it's like it's a two-way and the driver's size is five and a quarter inch. So it's going to move some air, but not a huge amount. But I still think, where's it? yeah, it goes down to 44 hertz, well, minus 3 dB at 44 hertz, which is not, it's not terrible. I mean, not it, I've, you know, I've got larger stand mounts here, passive stand mounts that kind of do similar, yeah, base reach. So... I just think it's a really tidy solution. And as you and I have, have said, well, discussed privately many times, Sajan, the the pro world doesn't do it any other way than active. Passive speakers, they just, <laughs> no. But audio files, they are, some of them are, and I, I guess I'm, see, I feel torn with this, right? 
part of me likes to choose the amplifier. That's nice. That's fun. But another part of me is just like, well, no, just get the amplifier in the speaker, tune it to the driver, get the DSP to correct for any kind of weirdness it displays, and then off we go. But there's no tweakability, really, apart from room correction. So maybe the room correction gives end users that sort of tweakability, or maybe the little DSP switches on the back give tweakability, or maybe oh, you do it with be... your source. I don't know. What you just said, and your source. You know, yeah. you, can, you can have a plugin that does a lot of EQing, uh, in something like Audiovana, I would think I'm not a Rune user, but I would think that in Rune, you can have a plugin that does can, all kinds of EQ. You don't need a plugin; it's built in. Oh, it's built in. There yeah. you go. So, yeah, I mean, you, you have a lot of, I think, very predictive and very strategic sort of surgical correction that is much more precise and repeatable than playing around with pucks and cones and cables and you know tubes and different preamps and all that. Right. I mean. I guess so, yeah. I mean, I think all you really need is a, a DAC with XLR outputs and a volume control. So like the yeah. RME or, excuse me, like that FIO again or, or the Eversolo. You know, I don't want to forget the mm -hmm. Eversolo. I get a lot of heat in my comments, Rajan, for bigging up the FIO and not kind of bigging up the Eversolo as much. But it's because I like the FIO more. It's that <laughs> simple. <laughs> like I, just, I think it's the better device. So um, anyway, like I just think that this Neumann KH120 Mark II is something that maybe this audience, and I'm talking about viewers and listeners, because this will go out on uh, the sort of SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple podcast platform as well. So anybody listening to this or watching this might not be aware that there's a, well, there's a veritable world of studio monitors out there. Some of them have crossed over into the hi-fi space like key and like, Dutch and Dutch, Srijan. How'd you like that segue, huh? Ah, uh, brilliant. <laughs> so, Dutch and Dutch, the double D, with a speaker called the 8C. And mm -hmm. C is short for cardioid. And cardioid really means heart-shaped, which also is familiar from microphones, where if you have an omni-microphone, it will pick up sound from all directions. If you want to cut out some of the background noise, so to focus on the person that you actually want to record, let's say I'm recording you in a in an outdoor cafeteria, mm -hmm. and I want to block out the din of all the other people talking, I would want a directional mic, so a cardioid mic. And the key, and the very, very Big Bang Olufsen, I believe, were the first speakers, at least the first ones I ran across, that really popularized cardioid dispersion. Mm -hmm. And the key sort of proved it because you could put it unbelievably close to the rear wall and then walk towards the speaker and then sort of stick your head behind the speaker. Mm -hmm. And it's like, whoa, there's no bass. There should be an enormous amount of bass in the corners, except... All of that bass was strategically canceled to fire it at the listener, just like the two front-facing drivers. And they did that with heavy DSP. Now, Dutch and Dutch have a big 8-inch two-way monitor mm -hmm. that has two 8-inch sealed woofers firing out the back. And the unusual thing is that on the side, on the cheeks of the speaker, there's like two slots behind the mid-range. So the rear radiation of the mid-range goes right out through the slots, meets the energies that want to wrap around the cabinet, 
and now plus and minus phase cancel each other out. Mm -hmm. So you essentially have no radiation to the side, and you have very, very little radiation that goes to the back of the speaker. So in order to... Their cardioid implementation is is a passive one, isn't it? It's not active. It's not a DSP. Correct. It's passive. Yeah. And now in order to make the woofers behave similar, because usually the woofer wavelengths are so long that they just wrap around any kind of, even a very wide speaker, Mm. the recommended listening distance to the front wall, in other words, the wall behind the speakers that we are looking at, is supposed to be like 10 centimeters. Mm. And so now what happens is that the woofers face the wall and the reflect the reflective pass is so short that for all intents and purposes in the base at these long wavelengths it's as though the speaker was built into the wall the woofer so it can't wrap around it can only Mm. go forward and obviously the woofers are going to arrive at the ear just slightly later than the front drivers Mm -hmm. because there is the depth of the cabinet and then there's a little distance to the wall and then it has to come back before it catches up with the front they do a delay of the front drivers in DSP, just ever so slightly, so that mm-hmm. basically now you have like one waveform that just moves forward, doesn't see the sidewalls, and everything is sort of time aligned. Right, okay, now, yeah. Now, that speaker has been around for quite a while. Yes. And Marjorie and Hank, who used to uh, review for me, the only couple that I ever had where mm. the man and the woman reviewed together, they covered it many years ago. However... I believe a week ago, I got a press release about there now being the world's first third-party plugin for a DSP active loudspeaker. Mm -hmm. And that plugin, and now I'm going to have to look this up because it's getting complicated. It's called Bach. Now, you have heard of Bach flower remedies. Okay, this is the Bach oral remedy, but it's with an additional C. So it's Mm B-A-C-C-H, which is, here goes, short for... Band assembled crosstalk cancellation hierarchy. Okay, this is to me like higher <laughs> physics. It but is probably, yes. the long and the short of it is, is that when you listen to headphones, the right ear only hears the right channel information. It can't hear the left channel because and vice versa, right? Mm-hmm. So there's no what we would call crosstalk going in mm-hmm. on. And the interesting thing is that there are circuits called cross-feed, and they're for people who complain that headphone listening is very different from speaker listening. And trying to emulate the speaker listening perspective, they inject this cross-feed circuit that artificially sends some right channel data into the left ear and vice versa. Mm-hmm. Okay, now there's something else called a binaural recording that is specifically made for headphones. And the way it's made is that they have a dummy head mm-hmm. with two microphones that are embedded in the ears of the dummy head. And that's how you record. So the microphones are spaced exactly as far apart as the ears are. And if you play back a binaural recording over headphones, and I must admit I have not done this myself, apparently the sound staging is just tremendous. Mm-hmm. Now I have to look this up to make sure I get this gentleman's name correct. He's called Professor Edgar Chaueri. I mm-hmm. believe that's how you pronounce it. And he's a Lebanese-American plasma physicist at the Princeton University. And his whole concept is to mimic binaural 
recordings or binaural audio over loudspeakers. And so what does that entail? Well, you could mock this up with a wall from your nose, straight between your loudspeakers, as mm -hmm. though you took a mattress and you now basically block the left speaker from reaching your right ear and vice versa. Obviously, the speakers still reflect from the walls, mm -hmm. so you want a well-treated room. But that's the principle, is to build this wall. And that's, so, what, he has, that's what he has done in DSP. So is he turning speakers into headphones? Not really, because headphones, you can't get the image out of your head. Mm. You might have a wide staging headphone, and maybe now your image is this wide, but it's still not in the room. Mm -hmm. And even if you could, it would be sort of like a mind fuck, excuse the French, because you keep feeling headphones on your ears. So mm -hmm. there's this constant message to your ear brain that the transducers are right next to your ears. So even if the sound seems to be coming from there, your brain knows that's, that's not for real because it's coming from right here. Mm. But so this plugin is called the Ubach. And it retails for 400 euros. Mm -hmm. And it now is available pre-installed inside the Dutch and Dutch HC loudspeaker. But, and this I didn't know until I talked to the, I don't know whether he's the marketing manager or one of the key designers. His name is Martin at mm -hmm. Dutch and Dutch. Yep. He explained to me that this plugin is actually not embedded in their DSP. It's embedded in the computer board of their LAN input. Huh, okay. And that means that the only way this Bach works is over LAN. You each speaker has to be fed through the RJ45 input. Because otherwise, right. in order to work, they if in order to work AES EBU in or XLR analog in, hmm. the signal would have to go from the DSP to the LAN board, and then back to the DSP. Mm -hmm. And they said that was not feasible, it was inelegant, and they would not do that. So the only way you can benefit from this plugin is that you need to run over your network, and the network has to feed each speaker separately. Yes. So even if you run local files like I do, you have to run them over the network. Yep. Now, I have not yet heard this plugin, but it is said to improve the sound staging to make it more immersive. Mm. Now the plugin is the generic plugin. So the filter is not generated with a pair of microphones that you actually stick into your ears to make a personalized filter. This is sort of the more generic filter. Mm -hmm. And the reason why Dutch and Dutch believe that their speaker lends itself ideally is because of the cardioid dispersion. So they basically take the room out of the equation as much as possible to have primarily direct sound. And now even the generic plugin that doesn't have to worry about the reflected sound sort of smearing the effects is supposed to be really effective. Hmm. Now, the plugin in the loudspeaker is a thousand euros above and beyond what the speaker costs by itself, which is about 16,000 euros, 16K. Hmm. And so when I was on the phone with Martin, I said, well, what would you say to people that point out that you can buy the Bach plugin separately for Mac OS or Windows for 400 euros and you're charging a thousand for the exact same thing? Mm. And he said, good question. And then he got quiet for a moment. 
And I said, <laughs> okay, let's see what's coming now. And then he explained. He said that mm. when they wrote up the contracts with the company called Theoretical Acoustic. Now I can't find it. Anyways, it's a company that oh, Theoretical Applied Physics. Mm -hmm. They're the license holders for Bach. Right. When they wrote up their contract to get the license to use it, they settled on a thousand euros. And then a few months later, the same company decided to make the same plugin available for everybody, and they dropped the price by more than half. Mm. This is for all the people that are listening and that would otherwise be apt to point the finger at Dutch and Dutch and say, you're ripping us off. Well, they are not. They're locked in. This is what they agreed to pay. This is what mm. they have to charge. Right. And the companies themselves then sort of changed the ballgame. But I think this is another instance of what you like to call FutureFi. Absolutely. Yep. Which is sort of DSP active loudspeakers that can benefit from room correction software and multiband EQ, and now what's called a third party plugin, which is mm. a different kind of DSP that does some very trick things. And Dutch and Dutch are already working on one more plugin. I asked whether they could tell us what it is that they're working on. He said, not yet. And after that one, there's, he said there's already other licensees approaching them. Hmm. So who knows what kind of features we can expect in the future. But right now, this plugin is available. And if you don't want to buy this particular speaker, you can install it on Mac or on Windows already. Right. Okay. That's interesting. I mean, I knew they were putting it in that speaker. And I, I knew when I spoke to Martin years ago, I knew he had certain aspirations maybe to extend the capabilities of his speaker because he's essentially got a computer running inside each one and he's already got um room i guess you'd call it yeah room compensation so you've got like a parametric eq so you mm -hmm. can tailor each speaker to the room already yeah so we did that here actually when he came over with we did it with room eq wizard did it per speaker okay okay we got a bump here let's attack that with a, a dip inside the speaker pull that down and it was it was pretty impressive. I mean, it does take some time. I mean, I'm not one really for. I guess maybe it's because I'm lazy. I just like the wizard approach of just like do the sweep, <laughs> let me move the mic, do another sweep, right? Because I I guess it's and I like a lot of audio files. Like I don't trust myself not to make a mistake because I'll forever be thinking, okay, are the speakers, are they balanced in terms of like bass or maybe that one's got too much bass? I just don't know. But obviously the room is never perfectly symmetrical. So it, it's hard It's hard to know. But like I like the idea of this very much. And I know that it's a different way of tackling it in a more manual sense rather than the automation of Dirac or Lingdorf or even Sonar works to a lesser extent or even the MA1 from Neumann. So I... I I'm all about, I mean, I, I do like the idea of this sort of room compensation in in speakers. What I, what I worry about, though, this is, I was talking about this with, yes, I had lunch with Yesco on the weekend. And he and I were talking about how the proliferation, or maybe it was I was saying it and he was nodding along, I don't know. The proliferation <laughs> of room compensation software can inadvertently and incorrectly send the message that, because you've got room compensation software, you don't need, let's call them ugly passive room treatments that I have here. Whereas Yesco was very adamant that 
the room compensation software is like the icing on the cake. It's very potent, but it does not, it's not a substitute for acoustic panels on the wall and the ceiling because it can't tackle reverberation. And uh, Martin <clears throat> makes the same point about Dutch and Dutch. He said right. they try to get the design as close to perfection in the analog domain mm -hmm. and only use DSP to sort of shave off the rough edges. But if he says, if you use DSP brute force, because you're starting out with a crappy design and now you're trying to fix it, he says, you're causing more problems than you're solving. Mm -hmm. So he said, really solid acoustic analog design is key. And then the DSP is just the fine tuning. I think I've heard that from Klaus Heinz at Head as well. He says, like, you, there's no substitute for a good fundamental design, which you then optimize with DSP. And I guess Sony probably do that, although well, it's, it, if you ever listen to a pair of active noise cancelling headphones from Sony, but with the with the battery run down, so you just have to plug them in and run them as a passive, it's just it's not good. <laughs> so you then get to hear what that headphone does without the DSP correction. So obviously people it's not just sony it's people like bose and sennheiser they're all doing a lot of very powerful dsp correction in their headphones but i guess that's the limitation of products that have to come to market at 300 and 400 bucks is they can't afford to spend big on fancy luxurious drivers so mm. they have to you know to almost brute force them into some kind of performance window in order to have them acceptable to the customer at that price point well, to get back to Bach just very briefly, I'm personally curious, and I will <coughs> review this speaker with the Bach plugin, mm -hmm. because I've never gotten to music in surround sound. Never. Oh. <laughs> and, no. and in fact, the, the one time that I tried a 3D movie where you're wearing these funky lenses, right? Mm -hmm. I got literally seasick. Yeah. My brain, my brain couldn't stomach it. I got sick to my stomach. I had to literally take them off. So it didn't work for me in the in the optical field, mm. and it certainly doesn't work to me for me in the sort of acoustic field. So now I'm very curious whether this whole idea of making stereo imaging more enveloping or more mm. sort of quasi surrounding, whether I'm going to like that or whether I'm going to say, well, nice party trick, but why bother? It's not for me. I have no idea what to expect. I, I'm all for it if it doesn't involve buying and installing more speakers. Correct. <laughs> if, you, if you could do it with two, then great. You know, as you can with headphones, because you've mm -hmm. obviously only got two ears. You can't do you can't do quadraphonic headphones or, you know, five point one surround sound headphones. So, I mean, I guess when I hear myself saying things like that, I, I can hear the fuddy duddy part of me, the old man part of me, sort of creeping in and having a good old grizzle about things that a lot of people want to describe as the future. I mean, I've got a video coming about Dolby Atmos and music, but I'm just biding my time because I know it's going to upset a lot of people, not because I'm deliberately wanting to upset a lot of people, but because my take on it isn't, well, I don't know. The article has been up on my website for a long time. I just haven't made it into a video yet, but I will. I will. <laughs> so we'll get to that eventually. So do we have some time for like a left field entry? It will be very short, I promise. Well, can I do my last one, Sajan? Please. And then we'll come to any other business at the end. Okay. Um, I'll try and keep it quick. Basically, 
we've not really heard much from Arkham for a few years. They they were sort of obviously subsumed by the Samsung beast, you know, who are own Harmon and whatever. But they've just introduced, I think it's three new products. Sorry, yeah, three amplifiers. You've got one called the A5, one called the A15, and one called the A25. So the A5 and the A15 are class AB. The A25 is class G, which is what um, Arkham were known for in years past. Now, if you ask me what class G is, I can't tell you off the top of my head, but it's one of those things where I have to kind of go and study it and then relay it. So if ever I do a video about, let's say, the A25, that's when I'll cover what class G is. But, do you, I mean, unless you, you have you got an off-the-top-of-the-head explanation for class G, Shishrajan? Not precisely. I believe right. it's uh, an extension of class AB with a sliding bias. But I would have to look it up right. to make sure we're not spreading bad intel. Exactly. But we, d we definitely know it's not class D. So you've got three, three amplifiers, right? And they've got DACs inside them. And I think the f the um, all three amplifiers have an Aptex Bluetooth input, two coaxial sockets, and a Toslink input. And then the big one, so the Class G one, also has a USB input, right? Now, when I saw the press announcement for this, I was like, okay, okay, it's got this and it's got this and it's got this, but like, okay, where's the HDMI arc? Because <laughs> these are being priced at, I've got the notes here somewhere. So the A5 is going to sell for 850 euros, the A15 for 1250, and the A25 for 1800. So I'm looking at this thinking, I can't be the only one that thinks, well, if you're trying to, I mean, it's because they've got this brand new design, right? This new sort of funky design. By the time this, this version of this podcast goes up as a video on YouTube, I'll put pictures up of this product. But if you're listening to this through, you know, a Spotify or an Apple podcast, sorry, you're shit out of luck. You're not going to see what it looks like. You'd have to Google it, right? So they've got this amazing new industrial, well, I say amazing new industrial design. It's, it's very different. It's, I guess it's, I guess I would call it retro-futuristic to some degree. But, yeah, I, I was looking at these three amps going, okay, but why no HDMI arc? Now, I did ask Arkham about this because I can't bellyache about it on this podcast without giving them, you know, a right of reply. And they basically, I'll just synopsis, synopsize, synopsize, is that the right, the right word? I'll give, a I'll, give, I'll give a synopsis of what they said to me. I went through their PR guy in the UK. And he said, basically... What our camera trying to do with this first sort of round of radio series components is attract a new audience. So for them, it was important to have top-notch sound quality and then have Bluetooth because a lot of people use Bluetooth. But those two for me are at, at odds with each other to a certain degree. But I guess your average punter doesn't know that Bluetooth is lossy no matter what signal you feed it, whether it's high res CD quality or a lossy signal. So, okay, so they've they've put the Bluetooth in there and the Arkham PR guy said to me, like, if you want to connect your TV, there's always Toslink. Now, this is where the rubber meets the road, right? So right now for my hi-fi system, I when I'm watching TV, I use my Apple TV remote to select what I want, want to watch, like whether it's on YouTube or Netflix or whatever. But if I want to turn the volume up and down, I have to reach for my PS Audio preamp remote, like an animal, Sajan, and then, you know, volume up or down. Now, that doesn't sound like it's a major ball ache, not at all. But that's until 
you know, once you've tried HDMI Arc, you can essentially use the Apple TV remote or your TV remote to do all of it. So, you know, choose and select the program you want to watch and execute volume up and down because there's an HDMI connection between your TV and your amplifier. And as far as I'm concerned, it's a pure convenience feature. It offers no audible advantages over Toslink, so there's nothing really to be had there. There's no high-res compatibility or anything like that. It's just so you don't have to pick up a different remote. Back to you, Sajan. No, I had a quick question about Toslink because it's not something that, that mm -hmm. I use. Mm -hmm. I have way in the past. But is there a length limit that Toslink has versus oh. HDMI? Because USB, we all know, five meters, and yeah. that's about it. And obviously... Optical fiber, as you use it in a local area network installation, mm -hmm. that you can run for 20 kilometers, no problem. But uh, somehow I have this idea that Toslink doesn't want to be too long, and HDMI could be a lot longer. So for certain installations, there would be a benefit. I've used a six-meter Toslink cable here, no problem at all, and a super cheap one at that, like it's just cheap as chips. So I don't think there's... A sort of a penalty to be paid. Maybe if you went over 10 meters, I don't know. It's not something that's spoke about too often. But generally speaking, I think people have the TV on the wall or on a low board, and right. then the amplifier sits below that. So the jump that needs to be made from the TV to the amp, whether it's Toslink or HDMI, is pretty small. So I don't know, but there are other ways of doing it. There's a whole video about how to connect your TV to your DAC or amplifier. It's on this channel or on my YouTube channel. I made it last year or earlier this year. So if people want to dig into this a little bit more, but I really do think that HDMI arc is almost, for me, it's like a mandatory feature now for amplifiers that are pitched more to a mainstream audience, especially when they're more affordable at, you know, 800 euros, 1500, two grand, right? Now, this brings me to my next announcement because one company that does seem to agree with this thinking is Marantz, but they've done something quite interesting. So they've introduced a new amplifier called the Model 50, and it's kind of like the Model 40, but without the N. Um, and it's all analog. It has no DAC inside, right? So it's just got analog inputs as an MM phono stage. So if you want to stream, you have to get an outboard streamer, an outboard DAC. So at the same time, Marantz also announced the CD50N. Now, the N is important like it was with the 40N, the amplifier 40N, and the N stands for network. So what's interesting about the CD50N is that it's a CD player and it's a network streamer which is based around HEOS, but it also does Spotify Connect. And if you don't like HEOS, and I'm not a massive fan, then you can use the AirPlay input either with Rune or with any other sort of AirPlay source. But I'm not going to get into the kind of ins and outs of AirPlay's trickery at the moment. But what's interesting about this CD player, Sujan, is that what Arkham have done is they put an HDMI Arc input on the back of it. Marantz. Sorry, Marantz, yes. <laughs> this, this is a problem when you try to juggle so many like different models. Thank you for correcting me. So Marantz have put an HDMI ARC input on the back of their CD player. Now, the thing is, is because, generally speaking, the device that is connected to a TV over HDMI ARC is the device that does the volume control, 
that means that this CD player is going to have to attenuate the volume if you want to make the most of HDMI arc, right? So it's got pre-outs on it. But then that also means you that when you connect it to, let's assume it's the the model 50, aren't you going to want to have like a connected to like a, a pre uh, sorry, a power input, like almost like an HT bypass. But at least Marantz, I'll say that again, at least Marantz have specified HDMI arc on, on their CD player. And yes, I'm looking at the back of the Model 50N, sorry, the Model 50. God damn it, this is difficult. Um, and there is a power amp input on the, on, the, on the back of it. So you would use your CD player, the CD50N, <laughs> as your preamp, your DAC, your streamer, your CD player, and then you would just use the Model 50 amplifier, not as an integrated, but as a power amp, mm -hmm. and then have, yeah, the volume attenuation done by the CD player. Oof, but you don't have to. I mean, you can use the CD player and the, the amp on its own. But this is just a very kind of convoluted way to talk about how I think important, I think HDMI arc is for a certain segment of the market, but also how how the devil really does lie in the details of where that HDMI art connection sits as far as the consumer is concerned and what it means for the consumer if they want to kind of volume up and down with their TV remote. We should probably explain that ARC is short for audio return channel. And in the olden days, mm -hmm. you know, if when you put a, a DVD or even one of the, the big discs into a player, it would put video into the television and then it would route audio into your sound electronics, right? Right. Now, so you're talking nowadays, about however, a lot of people get the signal, the audio and video signal into their television. Mm -hmm. And now there has to be a way to get the sonic portion out into the electronics. And that's the audio return channel. Yes. Yeah, so the, the basically the, the TV just sends the audio into your HDMI arc input. Correct. So that you can, yeah, then use your hi-fi system or whatever system you have to yeah run the sound for your TV. I think, I don't know, like, I mean, I was never really a TV person until, um, well, I can't remember which manufacturer I was talking to. They were like, John, everybody where we are uses a TV right at the center of their, even their music system. So what, after I had this room acoustically treated, I relented and thought, okay, I'm going to put a TV on the wall. Um, and it made no difference to the acoustics now that the rest of the room is tuned pretty nicely. I've measured this room recently and it's still it's as good as it's ever been because i've got more stuff in here more cd racks and things like that but but the um, other thing to point out mm. to our viewers or listeners is mm. that you're very cleverly using your monitor your television this very very big samsung television basically as a display when you play music so it shows the artwork it shows all the metadata and you're using it basically like uh, a mirrored uh, smartphone app so you, when you control volume, you do everything over the television interface. That's one of the reasons I chose that TV, because I knew that it would display art because it's a Samsung frame. So when it's off, it just displays whatever art I choose. And also, well, like you, can, you don't have to have a Samsung frame to do this, but there's a, a Rune app called TV Remote. And that runs on my the Apple TV streamer box that's connected mm -hmm. to the telly. And so I fire that up. And then what Rune does is it squirts the, the cover art and the metadata to the TV when I'm playing music. And it doesn't matter what zone. Um, I could be playing to a, a DAC over here, but the 
the cover art and the metadata goes over here. Now, the reason I kind of went for that, and th that was one of the reasons I relented on having a TV, was I thought, hang on a minute, I can put this in the middle of the speakers, which is usually an empty void when we're filming videos. You know, it's just like either, and well, in the case of a couple of years ago, it was just acoustic panels, which I don't think is things that pe many people want to see. So now, yeah, I've got this TV that displays all this stuff. And obviously, this is the, well, not obviously, but this is also one of the reasons I, I'm a big fan of Apple Music, because that's also very TV driven on the Apple TV. Mm -hmm. And so I can use, that's why I like Arc, because I can use the left and right to kind of scroll through different albums and then the volume buttons to volume up and down. Um, yeah, I just think that HDMI Arc is important at the lower end of the market. I do. Mm -hmm. But obviously, Arcam disagrees with me, and they know more about amp design and selling than I do. So, what do I know? <laughs> but we'll see. You know, we'll see what people say about this when these, um, well, when review units start to ship, and also when people start buying them. I, I don't know. I Are you planning to review either one of the Arcam or Marantz models? Um, no, I actually do have. I think it's arriving tomorrow. I'm going to be doing the the Marantz Stereo Seventy amplifier which is for all intents and purposes an av receiver but it's just a stereo one and i thought that would be interesting because it's a thousand euros so it's a very hotly contested area of the market i've got an audio lab here which is a similar kind of money that does similar kinds of things but <laughs> the reason i said yes to this Marantz is because it had hdmi arc on it i thought well it has to because it's an av receiver um i just thought this is a great way to kind of see how these two things stack up because mm -hmm. i'm a big fan of Marantz's amplification i i know it's not going to be as good as what's that fancy class d one that they make that sounds nothing like class d that i reviewed it earlier this, this year i've forgotten what it's called is it called the stereo 30 or the, something like that um <clears throat> but yeah i'm going to do this this av receiver instead so i won't be doing these particular models i might do the rcam next year but I'm going to do one of those things I don't do very often. I'm just going to wait and see what everybody else says. <laughs> and if there's a lot of pushback on the HDMI arc, I'll be like, yes, yeah, see? And if nobody mentions it, I'll be like, okay, well, maybe I need to look at this. I don't know. Or maybe it just sounds so good that you can overlook that. I don't know. Okay, so here, here comes my left field. Your AOB. Entry. Okay. Uh, and uh, sorry to those people who only listen, because we're going to have some visual scoring. So, John, <laughs> what do you think? Oh, my goodness. What is that? This looks, might be. It looks like um, a wrench from the future. I don't know. Is it some kind of... Okay. So here's the wrench from the future. Okay. Now I'll show you this. Oh, goodness me. This is... <laughs> okay. What is it? Now, now watch what's happening because now it gets interesting. Okay, voila. So you're putting the wrench into this metal yeah, piece, yeah, right? Yeah. And it fits in nicely. Now we're looking at this. And okay. now watch this. Can you see this? I can see this. Yeah, this piece hand dangling down. Yeah, what? Is this okay, a speaker so this stand? Is no, not oh. yet. Not yet. Okay. And now we take this mm -hmm. and we put it in there okay and now what we've got we basically got a suspension bridge we're just missing the other tower right okay this thing 
It's freely hanging. Oh, I see. Okay, right. Yeah. So this, the the metal piece is connected to that sort of to a wire to, to the wire with the little sort of bit on the end to stop it falling off. Right. Okay. So the, uh, this is a Sven Bernicke. Oh, okay. Swing. Jeez, now right now I had a brain a brain fart. The swing bass. Okay. The Sven Bernicke swing bass, which is a an isolator for equipment, subwoofers, and loudspeakers. So mm. you basically you need four of those towers. Uh-huh. You need two cross braces that are yeah. cut to the length of whatever you want to support, and then either go side to side or front to back. Okay. Okay. Now, you're going to take a look at this. That looks like a, which, like a foot. Which just looks like an ordinary footer. Yep. But when I do this, you can see that inside there's three of those wires. Okay. So in a much, much smaller package, you now have a footer where the top does not touch the bottom. The top is actually floating on three microwires that are just less than three centimeters long. Okay. This is the same principle applied to a footer that can actually screw into a component. It doesn't need any custom length struts. Mm -hmm. And why am I showing this to you? And why do I want to mention it to our viewers? Is that if you have particularly loudspeakers that go really low and that you play loud, or more importantly, even subwoofers, Mm. and particularly if you live on a suspended floor anywhere but the basement, second or third floor, Mm. you know that as the subwoofer makes sound and it creates all the pressure inside the cabinet, and that pressure wants to go somewhere, and it goes into whatever it sits on, the Mm. floor, especially if you use spikes. So now the floor becomes like an amplifying board, and what's worse, the sound travels. Our house is more than 10 meters long, and on the first floor, my room is on one end, my wife's room is on the other end. And when I first got my subwoofer and I just set it on the floor on its stock footers Mm. and I was playing the first track and I said, yeah, I got really good bass here. Within like five seconds, I hear my wife shouting down the hallway, turn this shit down. (laughs) I said, what the hell? What's she talking about? Mm. All she was hearing was the bass. Mm -hmm. She didn't hear anything else, but that bass traveled 10 meters down wooden floor into Mm -hmm. her room. And so ever since I've looked at a solution for my subwoofers, I have a smaller one upstairs and I have mm-hmm. a really big one downstairs to make sure that the sound doesn't couple to the floor. Mm-hmm. So I've got rid of all the spikes and then I use those rollerball footers. There's all kinds of different ones, but basically three or four balls mm-hmm. in, a, in a race in that sort of wobble. Mm-hmm. And then you have viscoelastic, which is sort of like a squishy, rubbery material. Yes. And you find a lot of those under like CNC equipment where you have mm-hmm. really big saws that, that sit on a concrete foundation and you want to make sure that all that energy that that saw or CNC generates doesn't go through the rest of the building and everything starts shaking. Mm. So I've tried viscoelastics, I tried rollerballing, I tried a combination of rollerballs and viscoelastics, and the most effective, especially for low base, is anything that actually suspends the equipment from the floor as though it was hanging on a suspension bridge. And so this is called the, the Sound Chaos Vibra 68. Mm-hmm. There's the swing bass from Bernicke. There's a company now that's called Audite Acoustics in the UK. 
that make a platform that is big enough to house a really, really big turntable that goes for 645 pounds. Okay. And then there's a company in Japan called Wellfloat that have their own version of footers or platforms. Mm -hmm. And so whatever, whichever one you pick, they're all working on the same principle. And I recommend this very highly if you have subwoofer problems, mm -hmm. if you have sort of bass leakage problems or sort of bass grunge problems with big speakers. Yeah. Or if you want to isolate a turntable that is sensitive to footfall, or if you get advanced enough where you think that you hear a difference when your equipment itself is actually decoupled from the floor. Mm -hmm. And rather than buy an expensive equipment rack, get something cheap from Ikea that's made out of all bamboo maybe. And then all you do is you have a set of three or four of these at, instead of the spikes underneath the equipment rack. Mm -hmm. Everything that's on that rack is very effectively decoupled from the floor. So this is not a coupling device. This is like a decoupling device. Mm -hmm. It's as though your equipment sat on Nike air soles rather than on Prada spikes, you know? <laughs> okay. I thought we were going to about to take a, a journey into wacky audiophile territory there, Sajan, and I'm glad you kept it sort of just as a bass problems and subwoofers and speakers and turntable vibrations and kept it, you know, sort of, yeah, less wackadoodle, you know, because... <laughs> well, some... you can certainly you know, go further. And uh, I have to admit with a grin on my face that I actually tried these underneath a solid state DAC that was mm -hmm. already sitting on a vibration isolation rack. It shouldn't mm -hmm. have made any difference whatsoever. It did. It did so much that I that I actually bought a set of eight of these. What, what does a set of eight cost you of those? Uh, are they... These are 300 Swiss each. And when you buy a set of eight, they're 270 Swiss each. It's not cheap. Yeah, yeah. So I got these for underneath my subwoofers, and then I have something equivalent for underneath the DAC. And do, they, do those screw directly into, into the base of your sub? Yes. And you can get uh, three different inserts. So there's adapters for M4, M6, M8. If you needed M10, I'm sure you could get that. Mm. So whatever the, the bolt opening is at the bottom of your sub or even equipment, this bolts right in it. And so when you move the speaker or the sub, this one comes with it. Right. It just moves right along. It's very, very effective. Yeah, I mean, I use, what do I use under my, they're under my kefs at the moment. And this is awful because I've, I've forgotten the name of the company, even though it's a Canadian company that make these footers to go in the bottom of speaker stands. Isoacoustics? Isoacoustics, thank you, Sajan. So it's probably the Gaia, right? Yes, yeah, so I use the Gaia 2, I think. But I know that a lot of people use them as well. And I have I did sit through their, well, I say sit through it, it wasn't like I was enduring anything. I mean, I sat, sat for like five minutes listening to AB comparisons in Munich this year, and it was just instantly obvious mm -hmm. the improvement that these things can make to the sound of a speaker. And of course, people, when they see the price and they're like, I don't know, 700 euros for a set for both speakers, they go, well, there's, I'm not spending that. So there's, they try and sort of push it away by saying, well, there's no way that can work. But it really does. I wouldn't recommend, you know, putting them on $500 speakers, but maybe no, if you've got a speaker, not. you know, like three grand, four grand and above, then it's worth investigating, especially if you really love those speakers, you don't want to upgrade them, but you just want to elevate their own performance. I think... Yeah, vibration control under transducers is fantastic. Can be. Not always, I guess, but yeah. 